from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Diesel supply remains scary tight as the White House weighs ways to relieve the supply concerns. The administration also revealing new efforts to beef up the supply chain. Warning signs surface about inflation's possible impact on robust meat demand. Pessimism is pretty high with typical consumers as we speak. Uh, in the past, that can be a barometer for a recession coming. This Memorial Day weekend, a tribute to five brothers who went off to battle together. All five of the brothers were lost. The, the largest single family loss in American military history. The legacy they left will share this Memorial Day. And in John's world. So, how many vegans and vegetarians are there in the U.S.? Now for the news, USDA making a string of announcements this week that will affect the packing industry as well as poultry producers and farmers with CRP acres. Let's start with the latest effort to increase packing capacity. The agency saying it is making $200 million available to create a new meat processing capacity expansion program and it's all to help strengthen the food supply chain. It says the money would provide financing to independent meat and poultry processors to start up and expand their operations. It includes $25 million for workforce training. It will also provide grants of up to $15 million to qualifying recipients that use the funding to create a revolving loan fund to finance capacity expansion. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack announcing the plan while testifying before the Senate Ag Committee this week. It's an intermediary loan program. It's going to provide grants to co-ops, other nonprofit organizations, public agencies, uh, to create revolving loan funds uh, to assist and help those facilities to remain in business. We're announcing as well a $25 million effort to try to expand workforce uh, through our uh, NIFA programs. Uh, we think this is an opportunity to expand capacity. USDA also announcing a new proposed rule under the Packers and Stockyards Act that it says would protect poultry growers from abuse. The new rule would require poultry processors to be more transparent with contract growers. That's by disclosing details of the inputs they provided to each farmer and information about the input differences among farmers being ranked. Now, USDA this week also announced it will allow Conservation Reserve Program participants in the final year of their contract to request voluntary termination following the end of the primary nesting season this year. Participants approved for this one-time deal wouldn't have to repay rental payments. It also announced additional flexibilities for the Environmental Quality Incentives Program and Conservation Stewardship Program. So how many producers may actually participate? Well, Pro Farmers Jim Wiesmeyer expects less than 2 million acres in part because of the time it takes to convert the land back into production after the CRP contract is terminated. However, in colder climates, this may allow the planting of winter wheat or better prepare land for spring planting. Wiesmeyer says USDA's move is a major flip-flop and shows the push by the White House officials to get more plantings for the 2023 season to curb food inflation, a sign as to how concerned the administration is with food prices today. Well, USDA's latest crop progress report shows the planting pace 
picked up significantly over the past week. And while planting has now kicked into high gear, spring weed planting still has a long way to go. Right now, USDA reports only 49% of the crop is in the ground, a record slow pace right now for wheat. Normally, it would be 83% planted. And as for winter wheat crop, well, only 28% is rated good to excellent. That's up one percentage point from last week, but 40% is rated poor to very poor. The worst, Texas, where 79% of the crop is poor to very poor. It's beyond the point of no return. Any rain at this point is not going to help the crop. Well, can anything be done to solve higher diesel prices right now? Prices at the pump now averaging 5.53 a gallon, according to AAA. That's down about four cents from last week's record high of 5.57. Now we're hearing that the White House is looking into possibly tapping an emergency diesel reserve to try and ease the spike in price. However, it's reported the rarely used stockpile reserve is relatively small and would only serve as a temporary solution to buy time. Tapping the reserve has only been done once before in the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Well, President Biden was in Japan this week to launch the framework for a new trade deal with 12 Indo-Pacific nations. That trade deal does not include China. The U.S. hasn't had a trade plan for the Indo-Pacific in years. You'll remember former President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the Trans-Pacific Partnership in 2017. The proposal could increase trade, making it easier to get goods from overseas. Another goal is to improve supply chain as well as lower prices that consumers see. Congress would need to ratify the president's economic framework for it to become official. Some critics are already saying that they'd like to see more tariff reductions in the plan. The American Farm Bureau Federation calling the framework a positive step and it hopes progress will quickly follow. That's it for the news. Well, weather putting a halt to major planting progress made the past couple of weeks and it brought crucial rains for parts of the south and southwest. We'll have a check of weather next. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Yurisavik. Matt, Texas seeing rain relief this week and in North Dakota, it looks like relief may be coming in the form of less rain. Yeah, Ty, and that's right. They've seen a lot of rain over the past couple of weeks in the Dakotas, especially North Dakota. That's really taken away most of the drought conditions in the state. We've also seen a little help in eastern Texas, but West Texas, parts of New Mexico, you can still see that extreme to exceptional drought out there and those conditions persisting all the way into the San Joaquin Valley, parts of Nevada and even into Utah as well. If you move eastward, where we've still seen some rain through the middle part of the country, we're now seeing some drier conditions popping up in the southeast, especially southern Florida as well. Something we'll keep an eye on here, but more rain expected in the east as we head through the weekend and even into next week with another storm system moving its way on in. Here's a look at the root zone again, staying drier there. Parts of the mid-Atlantic, very wet where we've seen those pop-up thunderstorms in Florida and lots of rain continuing to be the, the kind of the theme here from uh, parts of Michigan and Wisconsin all the way down to the Gulf Coast. And then from Central Texas up into Nebraska, Iowa and back to the West Coast extremely dry and it looks to remain that way. Meanwhile, up here in North Dakota, that looks a lot different. Very, very wet soil up there 
and along the Pacific Northwest as well. Now the jet stream is going to be a little bit different because we've got a big ridge building into the east through the middle part of the week, staying cooler in the west. It'll be more active there across the northern tier, but then notice all the warmth all the way from uh, the central U.S. down into the deep south, going to be very warm through the end of the week, and then it looks like we start to see a pattern shift with another storm system moving in as we head through next weekend. It will bring more rain to the Pacific Northwest and Northern Rockies, something that we'll keep an eye on there. Here's a look at Monday, though. Hot and humid in the east, very, very dry. Just some scattered storms down there near Florida, and then another storm system keeping it unsettled there and cooler along the Northern Rockies and Pacific Northwest. Staying hot in the southwest even through Wednesday, and the heat and humidity continues with some pop-up storms there in the east, otherwise mostly sunny. Then we've got another storm system coming across the middle of the country by Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It'll start to drop some of those higher temperatures as we head through the middle of the week. That storm system moves off towards the east, still warm and humid, and then hot in the southwest, staying very dry, and a chance for some thunderstorms with another couple systems dropping through the middle part of the country as we head towards the end of the upcoming week. Here's a look at the temperatures this week. Above normal in the east, below normal in the west, and precipitation is going to be above normal where we kind of have that divide between the cooler temperatures to the west, warmer to the east, below normal though where we've seen a lot of rain in the last couple of weeks, and above normal there in the southeast. And here's a look at the June temperatures as a whole, looking at above normal for most of the country just staying below normal where we're expecting more precipitation. And here's a look at that June precipitation below normal where we really need it most. So that will impact farmers there from West Texas all the way back to the Pacific Coast. Time back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, the market's seen pressure this week due to more favorable forecasts in the Northern Plains and Corn Belt this week. But how much groundwork can be made up in the next few weeks? We'll ask Chip Nellinger and Arlen Suderman next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Chip Nellinger, Arlen Suderman joining us this weekend. Chip, another wild week in the market. Saw some extreme volatility. Soybean prices trying to make a comeback on Thursday. But what pressured prices and then brought them back ultimately? Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of factors uh, at work here. Um, first and foremost, I, I think that there had been uh, a pretty large spec position of, of long corn short beans and long wheat short beans. Uh, there were some rumors and some talk floating around uh, middle week here uh, about uh, Russia potentially allowing Ukraine to uh, export some grain out of the Black Sea area for humanitarian purposes. That was enough to cause some profit taking and some unwinding of that spread. And, and then I think beans are just competitive. I, I think that uh, basis levels uh, in uh, Brazil have been slowly rising. That means they don't have a lot of exportable supplies left. We don't have a lot. Uh, domestically here, you know, in a lot of areas, basis is a dollar over. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're in kind of the dog days of summer here where we're going to have to uh, really scrounge around to find some remaining supplies until we get some new crop supplies here this coming fall uh, on beans. And I think the action in corn and wheat tell you that commercials and end users are, are willing buyers on the break. Uh, it hasn't been uh, you know, uh, a waterfall sell-off here. There's been a lot of buying uh, on the breaks and, and rallies intraday. So yeah, I think we're on a good footing across the board, quite honestly, in spite of a lot of volatility. 
Well, Arlen, you know, the market's watching planting progress, a lot of concern in that northern Corn Belt. It looks like favorable conditions, at least midweek for North Dakota, South Dakota planting. But realistically, past that prevent plant for or that crop insurance date for corn, we're running into the, the date for soybeans. How many acres can get planted in a short amount of time? Yeah, that's a real problem. And I think everyone's going to be looking at Tuesday's crop progress report delayed today this uh, coming week because of the holiday to just see how much got accomplished. And it's really northwestern Minnesota, northeastern quadrant of uh, North Dakota, where we're going to have the big problems around the Red River Valley, where we're going to struggle to get spring wheat planted, corn planted, soybeans planted. We have a little bit more time with soybeans than what we do the other two crops. And I think we're going to probably lose 900,000 to maybe a million acres of corn in that region overall, um, maybe as high as that on spring wheat as well. And uh, so that's a real concern going forward. Normally the markets wouldn't care about that area, but this year every acre counts, particularly for the corn and the spring wheat markets. And so that's a real problem. Arlen, considering we may have some prevent plant acres up in that northern corn belt where they just had some issues planting this year, do you think that is baked into the prices today? Yeah, I don't really think it is yet. Uh, I think the market's focused on the rapid planting progress we saw the previous week. Uh, and I see Iowa and Illinois basically caught up, in fact, ahead on soybeans and thinking, oh, okay, we're going to be fine. And typically the market doesn't worry about acres in northwest Minnesota, northeast and North Dakota, but every acre counts this year. Well, Chip, still a lot of questions out there, especially when it comes to how many exports is Russia actually going to let out of Ukraine? A lot of issues still with planting. But a lot of questions right now on is the top of the market in after we saw some of this relief come this week? What do you think? Yeah, I, I would doubt it. Um, you know, we, we haven't really had a, a good old fashioned scare, right? If you just back up a step and kind of project out, we typically have a, a price break in, in mid to late May anyway, assuming that uh, we have good planting conditions and things are going to the ground well. So I think this is just your normal, uh, uh, you know, like Arlen was alluding to, the markets perceive that the crops in the ground, everything's great, we're getting rain. And that's true in areas where the crop is in and up and growing, um, couldn't be uh, almost a more ideal conditions, but there's still crop left to plant. I think uh, that, you know, the top isn't in, if it is, we should get some sort of a strong retest. But Arlen was, was mentioning, and it is true, we are supremely tight on things. I would be very shocked if Ukraine does export anything, if Russia allows that. I think it's a PR game at this point in time, and they're uh, kind of uh, using the news flow to their advantage uh, to make them look uh, good, make themselves look good. I doubt if anything comes out of there. Uh, any little threat at all, uh, 10 days of hot, dry weather in the Western uh, corn belt at all, and uh, this corn market could uh, explode higher on uncertain yield potential. Well, a lot going on on the protein side of the ledger as well. We'll get into livestock prices this Memorial Day weekend coming up. Well, many of you may have plans to fire up the grill this weekend, but with the push to more plant-based protein diets, are there fewer grills featuring protein such as pork or beef? John Phipps joins us from his farm this Memorial Day weekend. Four years ago, Purdue economist Jason Lusk made a serious effort to quantify an issue that had been swimming in bad numbers. How many non-meat eaters there are in the U.S.? Depending on the question phrasing, survey rigor, the answer definitions, and the frequent presence of surveyor bias, 
we were really just making numbers up. Lusk surveyed 1,000 consumers every month from 2013 to 2017. His findings were about 5% of Americans don't eat meat. As a note, some surveys include vegans as a category of vegetarians. Some list them separately. Vegans don't eat any animal products, such as milk or eggs, in addition to not eating flesh. Two other surveys just released this year by researchers from Oklahoma State and Kansas State now fix the number of non-meat eaters at, or vegans and vegetarians put together at 10%. These new surveys seem as meticulous and statistically valid as the work by Lusk. It is important to be careful reaching conclusions from essentially two data points, however. Writers looking for eyeball-grabbing headlines could state, the proportion of vegetarians and vegans in the U.S. has doubled in the last seven years, with some justification. The temptation, though, will be to extrapolate a trend and make predictions based on this minimal data. I even expect to see dubious claims like, in X years, most Americans will be vegans or vegetarians. For my money, I'll go as far as saying there seem to be more vegetarians and vegans than there used to be. In addition to such research, there is more and matching anecdotal data. Most of us know at least one vegan or vegetarian personally, for instance. Vegan restaurant menu items and supermarket products touted as plant-based no longer strike us as particularly unusual. Beyond what the numbers may indicate, I can predict with some confidence what farmer reaction to claims of more people shunning animal products will be. There will be strong denial, skepticism, at least until consumption trends are clearly visible in market prices and consumer demand, and animosity to those who bypass meat. We've been here before with milk consumption, HFCS, GMOs, BST, organic gluten cages, and other consumer food issues. We have won exactly none of those arguments in the public mind, but the inevitable and surely futile farmer-funded consumer education programs will sustain a large ag public relations industry. And you can hear more of John's commentary on our Farm Journal YouTube page. All right, let's take a quick break and then Machinery Repeat, he has tractor tails this weekend. Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPeat.com. Well, this is my M. My dad bought it brand new in 1951. I did the 350 first, and I was in the local restaurant with my brother, and I said, boy, Darrell, I'd sure like to find my dad's M. He bought new, and he said, well, you dummy, it's in our cousin's shed. It's been there 20 years or so. So I hustled over and got him, and he gave me the M, and I got a lot of work in this one. <laughs> she was really bad. The motor was froze up. The, everything was just, there was no oil. It was close to tar dripping out of the rear end. I redid everything, took her down to bare metal, sandblasted her and cleaned her up. I'm very proud of it. It's a Kleiner tractor and it can't ever be sold. It's got to go to either my sons or my nephews or my cousins. Somebody's got to own this tractor. We hope they never sell it on us. 
I enjoy it. I take it on tractor pulls. I got fourth last week with it at the local county fair. Oh, they didn't believe I could do that good at work. I did have a guy paint the hood and the fuel tank, but I did everything else again. I, I don't know if I can get that nice of a paint job on it, but that was our main tractor back then. We had a corn picker hung on it, a three bottom plow, did the planning. No, it did the disking and field cultivating. The, the little WD did the planning. And that, yeah, she did, did all the cultivating, did everything. I mean, she was our big main tractor, and I, yeah, I was very happy with her. A lot of money later, she's mine. <laughs> but I'm very proud to sit on the seat and drive it. Thanks, Greg. And don't forget, Tractor Tales is also on our Farm Journal YouTube page. You can catch up on any that you missed there. All right, up next, meat demand has been robust the past few years, even with the pandemic. But will inflation and rapidly rising gas prices be a storm cloud not even meat demand can overcome? That's our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. It's estimated 59% of Americans will grill this Memorial Day weekend, even if this year it's coming at a higher cost. But there are some signs Americans may be starting to drive less as the price of gas continues to smash records. So the big question is, can surprisingly strong meat demand continue even with inflation hitting Americans' wallets? That's this week's Farm Journal report. From record high gas and diesel prices on the road to a major spike in the price you pay to grill meat this Memorial Day weekend, Americans are seeing price spikes everywhere they go. We did a survey of about 1,000 U.S. consumers a month ago and asked, how are you responding to these rates of, of food price inflation? The most common answer was, I'm just paying more. The unofficial kickoff to this grilling season comes with thicker shock that's been mounting over the past year. The latest consumer price index shows despite the overall pace of headline inflation easing, the cost of groceries alone increased 10.8% since April 2021, the largest annual increase in 42 years. And that's driven largely by the price of meat, poultry, and fish up 14.3% in the past year. That's the largest 12-month increase since 1979. Kansas State University's Glenn Donzer says there are two major drivers of the price hike. One is they still like protein, so demand overall is strong, certainly compared to pre-pandemic. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. There's a little bit of weakness building, but demand pull pulls prices up and the cost of producing meat is up. It's not just meat. The national average price for a gallon of gas hit another new record of $4.59 a gallon. That's 47 cents more than a month ago and $1.56 more than what drivers paid a year ago. We're on the road in the summer. So we may not be done with those higher gas prices is the point. A JP Morgan Chase analyst projected this week that gas prices could top $6 a gallon by August. And it's already drawing concerns about the price pain eating into meat demand. There's some warning signs and a little bit of easing on meat demand for some consumers. So those that haven't changed jobs, haven't had a pay raise, may not have a wealth effect from the stock market, you know, that group is the ones that's feeling the pinch the hardest. With concerns of a recession, the meat industry is watching the economy closely. We had the recession in 08 and 09. Did we see a dip in overall consumption for a little bit? Yes, but it was a small dip. Midan Marketing recently surveyed consumers and found 54% say they are purchasing about the same amount of meat products, while 32% are starting to buy less. So we've got consumers that are feeling the real tight crunch of the wallet. 
And what they're doing is they're trading down. They're staying in meat right now. They haven't traded out. Amstein says while some shoppers may be buying more hamburger instead of steaks, statistics show USDA Prime items are also doing well. And current CPI data shows more consumers may opt to eat out more, considering food prices at restaurants rose at a slower rate compared to grocery stores. I think there's still some eating of the higher input prices, trying to get foot traffic back in restaurants. That won't go on forever. But for those shoppers still buying meat from their local grocer, how can the meat industry win them over? Well, Amstein says it's simple. Tout protein. Get it on the front of the package. Make it stand out. Make it pop. The National Beef Checkoff produced this visual to show why meat is your best source of protein. Data shows in order to get the same amount of protein from a three-ounce steak, you would need to eat six and a half tablespoons of peanut butter or three cups of quinoa. Protein is hot. And unfortunately, folks in the middle of the store are doing a better job, in many cases, of showcasing that than we are in the meat case. But we're the best source of protein. Even with room to grow, Glenn Tonzer, along with Purdue University's Jason Lusk, just released a report called Meat Demand Outdoes Meat Avoidance. Even with the push to plant-based protein, the two economists found U.S. consumers have a growing hunger for meat. Tonzer and Lusk found in 2021, Americans wanted to consume 31% more beef, 24% more pork, and 40% more chicken than they did two decades ago. Three-fourths are regular meat consumers, one-fourth are not. Uh, in a country of over 300 million people. It's not surprising we have that diversity. You can have strong national meat demand and have a growing number that are looking for something different. And I think it's exactly what we got going on. And one of the largest groups of meat eaters, millennials. If you were to read the headlines, of course, they talk about that millennials are the group that are the most open to alternative proteins and other things. And that's probably true. But they're also the group that eats uh, meat at the highest rates of any, any uh, category or generation. And so those two things can be true at the same time. They're open to al alternatives and they like the products that are available. Bobo says the biggest mistake is telling consumers what they shouldn't eat. If you tell somebody don't eat hamburgers, they're going to go eat a double quarter pounder just to stick it to you. So I think it, it hurts when people attack the sector. But instead of responding in terms of, well, don't eat plant-based meat, talk about, well, you know, here's the reason why you should feel good about what you're doing. The true test for meat demand may be in the coming months as the economy battles historic inflation with talk of a recession looming. Pessimism is pretty high with typical consumers as we speak. Uh, in the past, that can be a barometer for a recession coming. Tonzer says that's not the only measure of inflation, but if consumers start to taper their spending because they're concerned, then it can cause what's called a self-fulfilled recession. And I think that's the most common narrative on the street now in response to, you know, six, eight percent inflation, depending on who you ask. Uh, consumers are tightening their belt and maybe that will reduce demand for products enough that that induces a recession in 2023. That's not a guarantee. But we need to watch that because the meat industry is very prone to consumer incomes. And Tonzer says while there's not one strong indicator a recession is imminent, domestic meat demand hinges on whether the U.S. economy runs out of gas or not. As we reported earlier in the show, the Biden administration is trying to strengthen the food supply chain with a number of announcements this week, including more money to expand meat processing capacity. $200 million will be available, including $25 million to expand workforce training. I spoke to one pork producer on Thursday who told me he's glad the Biden administration is focusing on the supply chain right now, but he acknowledged there's no quick fix for the current issues plaguing the supply chain. Well, feed costs are a concern also for meat producers, but what's the outlook for livestock prices as we head through the summer months? Arlen Suderman and Chip Nellinger rejoin me next.
It's time to sign up for the 2022 United Pork Americas Conference in Orlando, Florida. Register today at unitedporkamericas.com and join us September 7th through the 9th. Welcome back. Chip Nellinger, as well as Arlen Suderman, joining us this weekend. Arlen, got a look at those frozen beef, frozen pork stocks. Those pork stocks, we have the highest in two years. It kind of puts some pressure on the markets. Do you think that's just a short-term pressure, or do you think this weighs on the market longer term? Well, I think this concern is longer term, and the concern is the consumer and what's the consumer going to do. If you look at currency and circulation, you look at M2 money supply, you look at the uh, what the banks are saying, the credit card companies are saying, the consumer is still cash rich, but the consumer is choosing how to spend that cash. They're generally coming down the value chain. Uh, they're, they're, instead of buying name brands, they're buying more generic, they're buying fewer steaks, buying more hamburger, et cetera. And that's been affecting demand uh, for me both in the pork and the beef side. Now, there are some positive signs going forward, but we're still looking at uh, record pork carcass weights. We're looking at near record beef carcass weights right now. We need to be able to move through that supply. And when you look at the cattle, especially when we're slaughtering more cows than normal, we're slaughtering more heifers than normal, we're adding to that beef supply. And at some point, we're going to turn that corner and we're going to start holding back heifers and we're going to slow down the cow um, slaughter. And then we're going to have tighter supplies. The question is, is that going to be in the fourth quarter of this year? Is that going to be pushed to the first quarter of next year? Well, when you look at the seasonal seasonality, of the cattle markets, Chip. I mean, typically you see the futures trend lower through these next few months, but it seems like, you know, seasonalities don't really matter right now when it comes to these markets. Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, last week's cattle on feed report, the cold storage report this week, uh, fairly bearish. And, and I think the cattle markets uh, handled it pretty well, given, uh, you know, some bearish, uh, bearish news there. If we can just get a little help from the cash market, uh, we could see things turn. I think part of this is if corn does eventually make a higher high into summer time frame, or if there is some sort of a of a real threat and cut to yields, then uh, historically, every time that's happened, you have to bring uh, the protein markets along for the ride. So, uh, you know, very high feeding margins. You know, we've spent time well over $9 in the uh, southwest, southern plains uh, for corn. Uh, it's really uh, been a crimp on, uh, you know, not only hog producers, but cattle producers as well. And, and you know, I think at some point, uh, what Arlen mentioned is true. You know, the economy, uh, you know, kind of slowing down a little bit here, uh, high uh, energy prices, really a, a weight on the consumer. But boy, from the from the production standpoint, if corn hasn't seen its highs, I think eventually, uh, you know, hogs and cattle, feeder cattle even, are going to be tied at the hip to corn if it uh, continues to go higher. Well, we talked about that domestic meat demand, Arlen, in our Farm Journal report, and it has held surprisingly strong, even with inflation, even with gas prices. Now, there are some warning signs, but even when we had this demand so strong, it didn't necessarily always translate to higher livestock prices for producers. So are the two tied together as closely as they once were? Yeah, I think some of the questions also on the supply side, you know, our USDA numbers accurately telling us the supply. Maybe our cattle numbers are a little bit higher than what we thought they were. Um, 
and we've certainly seen some discrepancy on the hog numbers, but generally they've been on the other side, been smaller than what USDA has been saying. Um, and so all that matters when you're talking about narrow margins and, and being able to uh, to do that. But I think the real question going forward is still comes down to the consumer. We've, we've seen some good solid export demand for cattle. Uh, on the pork side, we've really lost China for the most part and uh, haven't been able to make up that difference. And so we're re relying more heavily on the consumer now in order to get that demand and sustain that demand. And, and that's just a real concern. The consumer, as I said, has the money to spend, but they're choosing to spend it in different ways. And that's not necessarily been helping uh, the protein sector. USMEF actually thinks that, that pork exports, at least to China, have bottomed out for now. There's room for improvement here. But when you look at where exports are going and then booking feed costs, there's a lot of options to weigh right now, Chip, especially when it comes to feed. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Lots of problems out there, um, you know, with profitability, uh, you know, going back to the uh, COVID low in the hog market, uh, when we couldn't get enough animals, um, you know, onto the chain through the system, there just wasn't um, the, the increase in production that you would normally see with those high prices. And, and that was, you know, going back 18 months, two years ago, now inflation's even higher. And so I think the back end of this looks looks good. I think uh, to Arlen's point earlier, maybe some of the reason we haven't uh, seen higher cash cattle prices has been the drought and, and the massive heifer and cow slaughter that you've, you have seen for going on two years now. All right, Arlen Chip, thank you so much for joining us this Memorial Day weekend. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have a special American Countryside next. Well, Memorial Day is meant to remember and honor those who served and sacrificed for our country. For five brothers from Iowa, their ultimate sacrifice is one that left a lasting legacy. This Memorial Day weekend, Andrew McGray helps us remember the Sullivan brothers. The Sullivan family lived on the north side of Waterloo, Iowa. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the five Sullivan brothers decided they wanted to join the military. They decided that they wanted to enlist in the Navy, and so they enlisted all five of them uh, as long as they could serve on the same ship. The Navy assigned the five brothers to the USS Juno. Two of the brothers had previous experience in the Navy. The Juno was a cruiser. It was a new ship. The Sullivans were part of the first crew on the ship. It seems that after all five had seen warfare together early in World War II, there may have been second thoughts about having the entire family aboard one ship. Perhaps they would ask to be separated when they made it back to port, but they never got that chance. On November 13, 1942, the Juno was part of the Battle of Guadalcanal. The ship survived, but was damaged. It took off the next morning heading for a, a station where it could get repaired, uh, and as it pulled out of the the Guadalcanal area, uh, a Japanese submarine spotted it, fired, depends on who you listen to, one and or two torpedoes, but it hit, it was aimed for a larger ship, the San Francisco, missed that and uh, hit the cruiser. A powerful explosion ripped apart the ship. Some say it sank in just one minute. There were only 10 survivors found several days after the ship sank. None of the Sullivan brothers were among them. All five of the brothers were lost. The, the largest single family loss in American military history. The family was devastated by the news, but wanted to see good come from the story of their loss. 
we're going to do our part. Uh, we want to do something for the war effort. And the Navy uh, came up with a plan to escort them around the nation to help uh, sell bonds, to help with recruitment. The Sullivan's sacrifice also inspired citizens decades later, when local leaders decided to honor the veterans of the area through a place that would share their story. A decision was made to expand the existing Grout Museum to have an Iowa Veterans Museum, which would use the story of the Sullivans as uh, symbolic of, of how Iowans, how Waterloo uh, people have served. Although it's a story from 75 years in the past, it's still a story of the present. It reminds us of the price of freedom and the sacrifice some families have made to protect our country. Traveling the countryside in Waterloo, Iowa, I'm Andrew McCray. What a legacy. Thank you for sharing, Andrew. And you can watch more stories from the American countryside on our YouTube page. Up next, meet demand abroad this Memorial Day weekend. What is the future? John joins us next. Well, beef exports continue to smash records, but what about meat imports? John Phipps joins us for customer support this weekend. From Dory Steckley in Petoskey, Michigan. How long until big business ag recognizes that the lowly public wants to know where their beef comes from? We want honest country of origin labeling, not a sneaky labeling that purports to indicate raised in the USA. I believe increasing awareness of various issues with the importing of cattle and beef from out of the country by such entities as JBS had led to the decline in beef equality as is found in supermarkets. Perhaps the unexpected benefit for local ranchers and farmers is a rise in local marketing and new smaller processing plants being built around the country. Dory, thank you for writing and for sending your address. Thousands of words and letters have been written and spoken on the country of origin labeling issue. Cool was enacted in 2009, then partially repealed in 2015 after losing a battle at the WTO. In my opinion, this ongoing dispute is far more complicated and interconnected than farmers and ranchers think. But that's a matter for negotiators and legislators, I think. My concern is in whether we actually know what the consumer preferences really are. Consequently, I was gratified that the USDA announced earlier this year that they will survey consumers to discover the importance of labeling to them. Information from a well-designed survey sure couldn't hurt right now. Doing this survey at a time of painfully high retail food prices may have some impact on the responses, but meat sales will eventually indicate what food buyers truly believe. I do not agree with the assertion that importing meat has degraded meat quality, especially since chicken and pork have largely bred distinctive flavor out of the meat, along with the fat, in my opinion, and beef quality and taste are always variable. The point about industry concentration is the key problem. When four companies control 85% of meat packing, market forces are diluted if not overridden. My guess is those independent small packers that you mentioned were a COVID phenomenon and not all will survive financially, especially with meat so expensive. 
a new version of cool labeling will be an employment boost for farm and food activists on both sides, but I have little hope it will solve the problems arising from an over-concentrated meat industry. Thanks, John. Well, there's one dairy producer who has a very important job this weekend at the Indy 500, and they will deliver that coveted glass of milk. We'll introduce you to this year's milk person next. Well, winners, drink milk and this Indy 500 weekend one dairy producer is playing a crucial role delivering the winning driver that coveted glass of milk. Meet this year's veteran milk person Tim Haynes, a dairy farmer from Garrett, Indiana. He owns Superior Dairy and has been training for his role at the Indy 500 for three years. Yes, this isn't just a show up and hand over that glass of milk. I mean, it requires training. The milk person first serves as rookie elect, then rookie milk person who participates in the race day until finally reaching the title of veteran milk person and handing over the winning driver the milk of their choice. So how do the drivers choose? Well, each driver actually submits their milk choice before the race. This year, 26 of the 33 drivers say they would like whole milk. 6% say 2% milk is their choice. And Tim Haynes says he has one job. That's to not drop the milk. A very, very important job. Well, from all of us at U.S. Farm Report, thank you so much for watching and we're remembering all of those who served and sacrificed this weekend. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.